Hey, everybody. So today we have a really extraordinary guest. And I have been a big fan of his for a long time, been following all his work, and I'm very, very excited to finally get him onto the show. Fabrice is a man that does not need any formal introduction. If you just look up and Google his name, you'll find so many things written up about him. You look at his face, you can see the excitement and the joy and the energy that he has. He's been an investor in everything from Alibaba to Box to Dropbox to Notel. You name it, he's done it. He's been there. He's been the founder of three startups, and he sold three startups. So I am extremely delighted to hear about his life story and the lessons he's learned along the way and how he got to where he is. So Fabrice, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. So Fabrice, let's jump right into it. So before we have FJ Labs, um, Auckland, Olex, Zingi, before everything, before the 400 investments you've done, where are you from? Let's go back to that little Fabrice. Where are you from and what was your upbringing like? Uh, so I guess my entire family has been from Nice in France for like the last 500 years. Um, I think my parents didn't trust the uh, hospitals in Nice, so they, I was born in Paris, though we're all from Nice. So then again, the hospitals in Paris are not much better. The second I was born, I was dropped on my head. Uh, <laughs> it, literally like the second I was born, so that was my welcoming to the world. Uh, but I grew up in Nice. There was a, a frankly very privileged and blessed childhood because I, I think you don't actually realize it when you live there, but when you grow up in a place where like the food is extraordinary, it's, it's sunny 300 days of the year. Like every day after school, I could go play tennis or I could go skiing uh, every weekend. Like you take the bus and like go skiing an hour away. It's, it, it's an extraordinary set of opportunities for a kid. Um, and the schools, the public schools there uh, where I went, I went to Lisa Macedo, were fantastic as well. And, and I had frankly the privilege of, of living at my grandmother's place. And, um, Frankly, through sheer luck, I happened to be the chosen one the second I was born, and, and so I was really spoiled rotten by by her in terms of uh, I could do anything, and uh, it was really really great. Now I was a very different child than most because I was, I, to the extent you watch Big Bang Theory, I was really a lot like Sheldon Cooper. I was this uh, introverted uh, but really smart, intelligent, passionate, ambitious kid, and so I, I you know I always had A pluses. I skipped what grades I would like read my spare time was like doing homework and reading and and playing with my dog so I was very shy and introverted but it, it was uh but I was actually really happy even though I didn't really have any friends because I was too interested in books and computers and and then of course I got my first computer when I was 10 in 1984 and it was like love at first click I, I, I immediately started programming I started building DDSs, uh and that in France in a world where like no one definitely at school but not even offices on computers so it's very not necessarily connected to the rest of, of people there but it, um, even though in a way it was rather lonely it was also amazing and I had an amazing time and I am very privileged for you know where I came from and the school I went to and frankly the family that was warming and loving that I came from Wow, that's absolutely incredible. You know, I just want to jump quickly ahead. How do we go from a shy, introverted kid to this outcast, full of bubbly, full of energy, and you know, person? Well, I was always full of energy and bubbly, but but very introverted and shy. And I think what happens is, for the longest period, when you're in school, when you're you don't actually need social you don't need to be socially well versed to succeed right like the rules of the game are well defined so in order to get an a plus you need to get all the answers right so i go to princeton i was still completely shy i mean no no friend no girlfriend you know working day and night 
taking like infinite number of classes and getting A pluses, like setting the highest GPA in the class, building my first company, working three jobs to pay for it. And, but again, not socially well versed because to do well, um, you just need to get the right answers on the, on the exams. And so very well-defined game if you want. And, and I knew how to play that game perfectly well. The transition from came kind of deliberately. Like when I graduated from Princeton, I was like, okay, do I build a startup immediately? Or, um, and, and that's really what I wanted to do. I mean, I went to Princeton knowing I wanted to be a tech entrepreneur. My role models growing up were like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. And I'm like, I wanted to be just like them, which is part of the reason I actually left France to go to the US and pursue the American dream and, and join uh what was not the internet revolution, but maybe the tech revolution at that time. And just so happened the internet was really born in the World Wide Web while I was in college in 1994 with the introduction of Mosaic and then 95 with Netscape. And it was pretty clear even then that it was a bubble because after the bubble, after the IPO of Netscape and then Yahoo got public and Amazon was starting to be built, though they were public a few years later. Uh, but I'm like, you know, I'm like this shy, introverted kid. I've never, even though I built a company in college, I didn't have any employees. I didn't know where to work in teams. I, I need finishing school. I need like business school, except they pay me. And that's why I went to work for McKinsey for a few years. And that transition of introvert to extrovert and inability to communicate and work in teams started happening there. McKinsey is amazing because they invest in their people. And I got there and often... I mean, he hires these really smart, often pretty awkward kids. But regardless of that room, I was often the most awkward uh, and usually the smartest, but actually not the most successful because in order to do well in life, especially in a context where you're working with clients, you need things like emotional intelligence, you know, empathy, at least the ability to express your empathy, uh, oral and written communication skills, public speaking skills, all of these that I've frankly truly lacked. But because McKinsey is such a wonderful organization, they actually hired people to teach you those things. And so I took like oral written communications classes and public speaking classes. And, and, and frankly, it helps you frame and structure your thoughts because when you're in, in, in college, especially a place like Princeton, you're writing these 30-page essays with long, you know, long introductions, long development, beautifully thought, beautiful flowery language, and these long conclusions at the end. And business speak, especially McKinsey speak, is the opposite of that. It's, uh, um, sentences of seven words with an action verb in the present tense in the middle, the conclusion up front, no more than idea, one idea per page. And, and so you need to relearn how to write. <laughs> and, and, but it was extremely helpful when it came to later for my startups, fundraising. Startup. But after two years, I felt, okay, I've learned what I need to learn. I, I've become better at like working in teams. Uh, let's go build a startup. And I thought I would miss the bubble in doing so, but I didn't. And so launched my first startup. And, and that continued that transition because when you're the CEO of a startup, whether you like it or not, you're really a salesperson. Mm-hmm. You, you're selling all the time. You're selling potential investors. You're selling potential employees. You're selling the press. You're selling potential business partners. And, and by virtue of being the chief salesperson of the company, you continue that transition regardless of whether you're an introvert by nature or not to extroverted. Um, and so that, you know, and, and, and of course, the fact that that company became very successful and I kind of made the cover of every magazine and raised tens of millions of dollars when I was like 23 and 24. And the company both famously blew, grew and then infamously blew up, sadly, and I lost everything, um, continued that transition. And then the final leg of that transition happened a bit later when I was uh, at 26, 27. I came back to New York at that point bankrupt. But 
I'd become very confident and successful in my in my professional life, and I was still this shy, introverted kid in my personal life. I'm like, okay, it seems to me that the rest of humanity values both friendships and interpersonal relationships, and values uh, the dating these mythical mystical creatures that are women. You know, maybe I should understand what that is like and how it works. And so, in uh, 2001, in the fall, I'm like, okay, I, I let's get a, the way. I, 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 I raised money as I approached all these VCs and all these VCs turned me down repeatedly until one said yes. And, and after I was rejected by a hundred VCs, um, the, you know, the 101st rejection didn't hurt so much. I'm like, maybe I can apply the same principles to actually dating and socializing. And I'm like, you know, the concept of getting a girlfriend, that seems too complicated. Um, but maybe uh, we can break it down into the steps required to get a girlfriend. Like, you know, A, ask someone out on a date. B, go on a date, you know, and, and figure it out from there. And so um, for 100 days in New York, I, I forced myself to ask 10 girls a day out in the streets, randomly in the streets of New York. And the point was not to get dates. The point was to get rejected and to get over this massive fear of rejection. And of course, at the beginning, I'm like, would you like to go, ah, you know, running around away in the other direction? Um, but eventually, you get better, and 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 after you know, so I asked a thousand girls out over a hundred days, so three months and, and a half, and uh, got rejected nine hundred and fifty-five times. And in a way, this was totally wonderful because um, I survived. You know, I realized I didn't die when when someone says no, regardless of the the I don't know the judgment that I feared. I, I just now that I think about it, like it's ridiculous that I had this fear, but. Uh, he survived. It's not a big deal. The 956 rejection doesn't hurt all that much. And because of the virtue of large numbers, then finally, I, I had 45 dates. And so then I had to go and figure out what that was. And by, the, by then, that led to ultimately having my first girlfriend, so I'm a very late bloomer, and, yeah. and finishing the transition from this shy, awkward, little, you know, kind of genius guy, but very weird, to a more well-rounded, socially well-versed uh, extrovert. Um, wow, that's just one hell of a journey. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least I'm happy. You know, you got one girlfriend from that whole entire experience, and oh you know, uh, no, I got zero from that experience. Um, oh no, no, that experience was like get over fear of rejection. Then I had to go on a date, and and I didn't know what a date was, right? Like I I thought that a date was a a meeting of the minds where two people meet and talk about philosophy and where you fall on the Voltaire Rousseau. Uh, or Locke versus Hobbes debate, and 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 remember, those were like random girls that I picked, that I asked out in the streets of New York, and so the the meeting, they, there was a, a mismatch of, and, and I'd never been on a date in my entire life, so a, a little bit of a mismatch of what a date was and what people talk about it. It led to massive crickets where we literally had nothing to talk about, uh, and I was bankrupt, and I I was stuck with like the bill for dinner, like it was a total disaster. So no, that did not lead to a girlfriend. But it led to step two, understanding dating. And then little by little, you know, got to the point where finally I had a girlfriend. But that took another six months. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you built up another thing. And I want you to elaborate on more. You know, the fear of failure, the fear of rejection, you know, even in entrepreneurship and daily life in general, we're just human beings. We're fearful. You know, we think the end of the, the rule is going to crash on us. If we go ask, you know, a person to join us, if we go ask a person yep. for a meeting or this or that, how can someone, and you obviously, figured out the unorthodox way to build up emotional resilience, which is incredible. And I think everyone should do that. What other ways do you think an entrepreneur or a regular person in day-to-day life can build up that emotional resilience and tolerance to failure? The, the 
But the easy way to build up resilience to failure is to fail in little ways, in ways that are not meaningful. And, you know, that, as a kid, if your parents were permissive enough, like, you go and you go play with a ball and then you fall and you get hurt. And instead of like being immediately covered and say, okay, never go play with a ball again, as you start on your own to figure out what is it, what are the limits of what you can do, and it's okay to fail. And and learning to fail uh, early, uh, be it in a scholarly setting, et cetera, is very useful. The part of the problem I I had is until. 26, I never failed at anything in my life in a way. Like I was always like the top student. I was great, great McKinsey. And frankly, even as an entrepreneur, it looked like I was doing amazingly well. I'd raised uh, the most money ever at that point in time in France in the history of venture capital. I was the youngest person to ever raise like tens of millions of dollars. I, I was, it, it was amazing. And then the bubble burst and I lost everything. And so my first failure was like the most public, like, on display for humanity to watch of like the blow up of the century. Uh, and, and it, it, it was, uh, from that perspective, it, it, that was a real blow. And I was thinking through, okay, what do I do next? And that was, that led to another entire element. But the good news is what it started building the resiliency is what, when you're in a tech entrepreneur, you realize that it's not like, in school where there is a clear right answer and a wrong answer. You don't actually often know what the answer is. And, and, and I am by far not the most humble person the world has ever seen. But one, one thing being a technical does teach you is a very a great level of humility relative to what the correct answer is. What is the right business model? What is the right what, what, what is the right wording on the side? What is the right color? What is the right design? Ultimately, I realized Regardless of what I think the answer is, you try everything, and and most of the institutions you have may be completely wrong, and and don't actually even listen to what people tell you the the answer is. Just look at what they do, and it's like and 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 because the way these websites are built at every level, from business model to marketing approach to design, is all iterative. It's like we, we throw a lot of spaghetti on the wall and we see what what sticks. In a way that teaches humility, because most often I do have an intuition as to what I think the right answer is, and more often than not, that is wrong. And because you're wrong in those little things, time and time and time again, it, you, you're, you're learning that you know that even if you fail, it's not a big deal because you know I, I chose A. Well, B was the correct answer. Well, we're going to do B. And as long as you build your your life in a way that is flexible, that you can go from A to, and then and try B afterwards, that you're not set you know rigidly on going down one path you're you're going to be able to recover and 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 in a way it's going to make you anti-fragile i mean it seemed to lab talks about this concept of like the failures that make you more solid now it depends on how you're built some people the more failures they have the more brittle they become and then it breaks but as long as you learn along the way from all the mistakes you make um each mistake that came before you makes you less likely to make mistakes in the future uh but what I have learned is to approach these things with a lot more humility. It's like, you don't really know what the correct answer is. And so you try and you try and you try. And, 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 and in a way, I also apply that in my investing these days. I invest in so many startups because most of them are going to fail. Uh, and, and by having so many, some of the spaghetti sticks on the wall. Uh, and in the meantime, I get to, to in, interact with amazing entrepreneurs and it's fun. So take me back then to your biggest failure that yep. you've had and the lesson you learned from it then. A lot of lots of slurs. So the, in a, this was a moment in time. I knew it was a bubble, uh, and I was in the right time, the right place, with the right skills. And I, I, in a way, did the most I could to succeed in that context. And I thought that that moment in time was unique. Lots of mistakes made. Um, 
I picked the venture capitalist who gave me the highest valuation and the most money and who had the biggest reputation in a way. And even though during the meetings, I could tell that his team didn't understand anything I was doing and no respect for the fact that I was so young. And But I figured that when the capital are going to be able to put it to good use. I also didn't understand anything legal and I never looked at stock purchase agreement before, so I didn't have a drag. And so when eBay came to buy us for like 300 million in cash, and at that point I was 24 and I was 40% of the company, I'm like, look, the company's doing great, but it's not doing that great at that price, and this is a good company we should sell. And my majority shareholder at the 50.1% said, no, I don't want to sell now or never at any price because I'm not in it for the money. And, and so that created, I learned there was a massive conflict of interest in terms of what we really wanted to do here. And that's the problem with taking money from a, a guy who's a multi-billionaire rather than someone who wants to build an amazing company. And he also didn't really understand the business I was in. And at the end, they made me sell to another company, and a company called QXL Ricardo, uh, which was a different business model. It was uh, a, a, They were selling things at auction, but they were selling new items at very low margin. To me, there's no way this was going to be an interesting business. And, and that company's stock fell 99.98%. The problem is... They didn't take me. They, beating my shareholders, didn't take me seriously. I didn't have the legal framework to force a sale. I didn't even know what those things were. And my lawyer also didn't take me seriously because he didn't think I was just a kid. And so I, I made a lot of mistakes because I didn't have the right legal advice. Um, and I thought these things took care of themselves on their own. Um, I picked the wrong VC because I took the highest valuation, the most money, and now the people that got me. And, and then I wasn't able to convince them, my, my major shareholder, to sell to what I consider to be the right buyer, uh, A, I wasn't convincing enough, and B, and B they just didn't care. Uh, and they wanted to do what they did. And they had oh, shares in the other company, so they'd rather sell the other company. And so ultimately, the, the bubble burst, the stock of the company that bought me with that 99.98%, I think their market cap went from 10 billion to 30 million, and it looked like they were going to go under. So lost pretty much everything. Uh, and, and after a, a, a conflict on my shoulder, I exited the company with essentially nothing. It's all of a sudden, I'm in 2001. Um, I'm no longer running the company I built. It was sold essentially at the end of the day for what is essentially peanuts and it's not doing well. And it looked like the internet was over. And so it was a... It, 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 not dark, but like a period of, of uncertainty in my life. Like, okay, what do I do next? Having been to such, soared to such heights, um, what what should what is it I should be doing on a go forward basis? So, before we move on to what you did afterwards and the way you did, you made that decision framework and everything, you know, you've obviously after you did Auckland Zingy and Olex, you know, and Olex was sold for three hundred million, Zingy was eighty million, and these are obviously phenomenal exits. And you go on the whole block. You wrote about how Olex could have been a you know multi multi billion dollar company. Well, it is a multi-billion-dollar company. Yeah, the problem true. is, it's a multi-billion-dollar company for someone else, right? Like, Correct. Yeah. <laughs> the company is probably worth five to ten billion. It just—I didn't see any of that. Um, Great. So, what are the the lessons, obviously, you learned from having? And we're not talking about the, in the investing part, but from being an entrepreneur itself. And you, at heart, are an entrepreneur. You know, that's where your heart is. That's who you are. Um, and if you build two, you know, massive companies, and one of them that's a billion-dollar company, so what are the lessons you learned from that? part of scaling a startup from the beginning to end and building it up and eventually selling it? The Well, the lessons on Zingy and the lessons on OLX are very different because the environments are very different. In, in 2001, I, when I thought about what I wanted to do next, I realized 
the thing I, I want to be an entrepreneur and maybe the internet is dead and it's never going to be big and it's going to be niche and no one's going to ever make real money on it. And it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, that's what I want to do. And so I optimized for, I want to be an entrepreneur. Let's do an idea that I can do in a context where no capital is available. And so I picked an idea, not because I liked the idea. Actually, I didn't like the idea. I didn't like the product I was selling. I didn't like the the I didn't like the people I had to work with in order to sell those products, but the main constraint I gave myself is I want to be an entrepreneur. I'm willing to compromise on everything else, and it has to be successful. And so it needed to be profitable, and I thought no capital was going to be available. And so I built a ringtone company where I needed to work with mobile operators, artists, and, and music companies, none of which I really liked to work with. And, and frankly, I didn't even like selling ringtones, so I didn't think that provided a lot of uh, universal utility. I mean, yes, it entertains people and it's nice. It gives you a little bit of social proof, but it's not, I didn't feel, feel it was like transformative to people's lives and, and, and would allow me, would be that compelling. But I would be an entrepreneur and this allowed me to be an entrepreneur. So, so it made sense. And so I, I did that. Um, here it was really making, and, and, and the lesson, frankly, applies across the board. Have a business where the economics make sense, where, where, where you know how to make profits on a per-transaction basis, such that you can get profitable whenever you, as soon as you can, or at least you have the option of being profitable. So often for our startups, you know, they've raised their Series A money, and they can get to a point where they're profitable. They choose to raise money and not to be profitable to keep growing faster, but there is the possibility of being profitable because the underlying economics of the business are profitable. So the case of Zengi, I mean, it was really hard to raise money. I raised 1.4 million in like five to 10K increments by begging and groveling from anyone I would meet anywhere at any point. Uh, and, and I missed payroll 27 times, but ultimately what really saved the company is we became profitable. And, um, and once we were profitable, we're in a position to, to keep growing from there. And that company, because we kind of hit at the right zeitgeist, I mean, of, 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 uh, um, of culture where when things like uh, in the club and hip hop from Fiddy and Eminem were starting to really hit uh, and people wanted to appear cool and ringtones were possible, all those things, the market blew up. And so our revenues went from one to five to 50 to 200. Um, but there it was like, you know, stay lean, stay humble, uh, don't burn too much, make the economics work. And, and, what I lost and I learned from the time before is one once the opportunity to sell came that was really meaningful and frankly it made more sense for the company to be part of that company than to be part of ours. I exited and this time I exited for cash um, at the right time and maybe a bit early uh, relative to what the company could have been. I mean, I sold in Q, I sold in May or June two thousand four and four, and in Q one we did four million in revenues and million in profits, and I predicted we we're going to do twenty and twenty million in revenues in four and. 1505. We did 1504 and 205. But, you know, as I learned, no, no one really ever went bankrupt and, and going selling too early and, and selling in cash at this time. And so it, 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 was, it was the right experience. Um, I sold using a, a banker and that was actually very valuable because when you use an investment banker, they become the bad guys. And so I can be the good guy. And so whenever... Uh, I would be in the meetings and be like, look, I've never done these transactions before. I really want to work with you, buyer A, but my bankers tell me I would, it would be unreasonable for me to accept this because the market is this. Or and so I make I blame them, the bankers, on on on, on the fact that I'm bidding up the price or so the fact that I'm changing the terms, even though it's really me driving it. But I can be the good guy. I'm like, look, I I, I I've I understand what you're saying. I'm being, they they're 
they're telling me you're unreasonable, but I'm willing, but because I'm such a nice guy, I'm willing to compromise. Because you want to build a good rapport with the people buying you. Um, Olax also was a bit different. Olax at that point, capital was available, companies doing really well. Um, I would have liked, I think, I, as I told you, not to sell the company. I think it was the company I, I envisioned myself running the rest of my life. Uh, the problem is, it was in a because it's a marketplace business. It's in a winner-take-all business, and we had a massive competitor that was spending hundreds of millions on TV and in the markets we were in, like Brazil and Portugal, and we needed to fight back. And at that time, American VCs didn't have yet the, the aggressiveness to say, okay, I want to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on TV and like Pakistan and Zimbabwe and India and, and Brazil. And, and so I had a partner with someone who was willing to do that, and that was Nasdaq, and very glad they, they were up for it. And they gave me almost a billion in primary to actually go and spend to win the war. And so after I sold, I actually stayed for three years with them because it was actually a fun ride uh, to conquer the world. And uh, ultimately merged with our biggest competitors in our favor. And, uh, and yeah, so by lessons learned there, same thing. I mean, we we, we kept, we had our back office team in, in Buenos Aires. We, we made sure that we built a business that made sense from scratch, from 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 pretty early on, we knew our business model, we knew the economics that would make sense, we knew what our CAC was relative to our potential TV, and we, we, made, we, we kept everything in line. So I want to touch on one point that you mentioned in the beginning when you started talking about Zingy. You said you did not have a passion for the product or for the people you worked with. Now, these days, entrepreneurship is all about, you got to have a passion for what you're doing. Yep. So how important, or is it not important, to have a passion and a love for the product that you're building out? Or it's not important at all. It's it's a question of constraints, right? Like the in an ideal world, of course, you should do a project that you're absolutely passionate about, that happens to be meaningful to you and society, that resonates with everyone, that that you can get funded, etc. It's just that 2001 was a very special time in history. We we the internet bubble had burst. Uh, we had 9/11. We had a massive recession. Uh, it was really hard to get. And, and I'm at, and and and. As a result, I had to make compromises. And and the only thing I didn't want to compromise on is I didn't want to have a job. I did not want to work for someone else. I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And so I was willing to, sacrifice, to compromise on everything in order to be an entrepreneur because that was the only thing that spoke to me. And that meant doing a project I didn't particularly care for. But I loved the day job of being an entrepreneur. Even though I actually didn't like anything, I was doing the, the specifics of the products I was building, I actually loved being an entrepreneur itself. I loved the, I loved the storytelling. I liked the creating something out of nothing. I liked the, the code, building the code and designing the product. I liked all of that, even though I actually didn't necessarily care for the underlying product. Now, Today, we're in 2018, we're not in a world that has these same types of constraints. I mean, capital is readily available at every round. You have exits available. You, you can fund most of the projects that make, that make sense. And so, obviously, go for a project that, that, that speaks to you and, and that resonates with you and for, you, for which you are the right, the, the right person. Right. So after Olex, you had this brilliant idea. You said, hey, you know what? I did Olex. I ran Olex. Let me go ahead and do the same exact thing for Craigslist. And you reached out to Craig and say, hey, Craig, let me run your company. And I would just take a little bit of equity and vet, let it invest it for a year. And if it doesn't work out, you can fire me. Yeah, what you can fire me and it won't cost you anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, by the way, I had a lot of crazy ideas. And, 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 and 
that's what, what I love to relax. I'm like, I have all these things I want to do. I try to run parts of Cuba. So I went to the Castro's and I said, give me a chunk of Cuba and, and let's create a special economic zone and let me run that. And, uh, and again, if you're not happy with the work, you know, you like kick me out. I try to run Craig and, and, I, I try to build a, a little personal project, which is, which is kind of a Necker Island uh, number two in the Dominican Republic. Um, and, and I wish some of those, and those were much, were larger, they were passion projects, I think they were, they were amazing. Um, the, what, what I've learned from that experience is actually not to not do these things, but the, everything I'd done in my life until then did not require other people's approval or permission. And, and that's actually the beauty of the internet. Most of the stuff we've, we've done until recently, it, it, we were doing it in our own little side quarter of the world and like no one was, was regulating us or annoying us or preventing us from playing. And, and as I started doing things that required other people's approvals, I realized like many people say no. And sometimes for frankly, no good reason, like the, my, the Cuba project made, infinite sense for Cuba. My Dominican Republic project made infinite sense for the Dominican Republic by, because of corruption, because of like different incentives, objectives, ambitions, like neither of them actually fell through. And in the case of the Dominican, I, I mean, I spent six years and seven million and like with literally nothing to show for it. It was like massive waste of time and money. Um, and, and, and so it's, it's part of, I'm still writing this framework of like lessons learned. I, I think the trying these long shots and these Hail Marys uh, that even though they require the people's approval is worth it. But I think you have to like create a set deadline for when you, when you cut the cord. Now that the crisis thing, I mean, my entire life I've been trying to build a better Craigslist and improve their experience will kill them in some way, shape or form. And so it kind of felt like the natural next evolution. And now I, in 2005, before I built to Alexa, I actually had made them the same offer, but then maybe I was not credible. In 2013, by then I built the largest classified site in the world. I was credible. And so I felt maybe going to them as a credible person, they would take me seriously. But frankly, they didn't care. They should not be meeting for like completely on, high on drugs and like feeding it in a true consciousness, not even remembering. I was, the, I was, I, every time I meet them, they don't remember they've ever met me. It's really funny. Uh, the, and, and you would think those were meaningful conversations. So I, I don't know. So I tried these things. None of them. Most of the things I tried, I mean, I, I considered like becoming a public uh, intellectual. And so, but then I realized I didn't want to do the work to do that. So I didn't want to publish op-eds, even though and, and I just like writing on my blog whenever and whatever I want and, and not being limited by a, a certain form or framework, frankly, idea. And so I tried a whole bunch of things and most of the things didn't stick, actually. And, and even though they would have been cool, uh, the fact that they didn't stick, they didn't work. I'm like, okay, let's do things that work. And then in the context of that, I laid out like 10 things I could do. And two of those things ended up really working, which is start continuing investing in, in, in startups and keep building a startup every year or two. And that's what kind of led to FJ Labs is like, um, it, those two things were really working and then we were being very successful at them. And, and, and so as I started dropping off, like I tried to build a video game and like, as I started dropping off the things that even though they were fun and I think it would have been amazing, didn't really work. And I just focused on things that worked, um, got us to FJ Labs and to where we are today. And FJ Labs is just a phenomenal story to begin with. Um, you know, you and your partner have done it, what, close to 400 investments? Or yeah, more? over 400 investments. So. You know, you've had 150 exits. Yeah. You know, what does that... I mean, I don't even want to imagine what the dollar amount on those 150 exits are. Yeah, so on average, we've had a 70% realized IRR and a 6x multiple on, on invested capital. So on anything we invested in these startups, we made 6x. 
Wow. So you recently just had your best exit with Graham Games. It was sold to Zynga for $250 million. Well, best exit in multiple, not best exit in absolute dollars, right? Like, so in absolute dollars, I put a million in Baba, and yeah, I think that's worth like $20 million, uh, at today's valuation. Uh, the Graham Games, I think we put... I, we collectively put 100K and then we got like 10 million out. So on a multiple basis, a lot greater, but an absolute dollar basis, not so much. So it depends how you calculate these things. So you, I mean, obviously have a tremendous intuition for picking the winners. I'm also the losers too. But it's- well, I, I would say it's, it's not just intuition, right? Like we've created a very explicit and deliberate framework of how we decide to invest in companies. And, and we have a, a, a set of heuristics and thesis that we apply to all the ideas that come in. And and we appear to be very prolific. Like some people think we're like just a, a spray and pray and we're investing and everything comes through the door. The reality is every week we get 100 deals and we invest in one or two. So the actual conversion rate to invest in is like 2% uh, relative to the, to the stuff we see. So it's not, it's not as... Even though we're very prolific, so it appears like you just need to knock on the door and you get a check. It's actually not the case. Um, and, 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 and the processes that we've built, I would argue, is more about avoiding losers than it is about picking winners. Because there's a, a, a certain amount of serendipity that comes into what becomes really big. Right. So you should package that up into software and sell it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah not completely easy to replicate at, at the AI level. Because some of the things are like... Is the person a great storyteller? You know, is the person metrics driven and and and, and evaluate? You know, having software evaluate that is not actually that easy. Things like what are your unit economics, and and that's easier in a way. Right. So you've been at this for a long time. You know, you started your first startup in 1998. You even started a startup in college, selling computer parts um, from the U.S. to Europe. Yeah. What are the differences between you when you started back in the day, 1998? To the startups you see coming out now in 2018. Yeah, in a way, you have it way easier today than you had in 1998. Because in 1998, in order to build a startup, you needed to you needed much more capital because you needed to get Oracle databases and Microsoft Web Services uh, servers and and you you needed a tech team that would build infrastructure. Like AWS didn't exist. Like two-thirds of my tech team was like building PCs and, and managing a data center. Like the idea that, that you would do any of that today is ridiculous. Like the things that, the first startup, I think before we were up, uh, we, had, we turned the lights on, we spent a million dollars. Uh, today, we could accomplish the same for like 25K, you know, maybe 50K in much less time. Like everything's open source. And the best practices in marketing were established. Like at that time, performance marketing didn't really exist. So we didn't know what customer acquisition costs were. We didn't know how to add to attribution on the marketing to, to the underlying traffic. We, we're so much more sophisticated today. Now, the, 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 the flip side is there's a lot more competition today because the barrier to entry is a lot lower. And so now you're seeing entrepreneurs not just in Silicon Valley, but you're seeing them everywhere else. But it also means that now you could be in Raleigh, North Carolina, or you could be in Berlin, or you could be in Pakistan, you actually can build a really cool software that, that takes the world by storm in a way that wasn't true before. So the barrier to entry to being an entrepreneur is a lot lower. Uh, now the environment for fundraising is a lot more rational now than it was then. I mean, in the bubble days, 
especially in the Valley, if you had the right pedigree, like you worked, you went to one of the Ivy League schools and you'd worked at Goldman or McKinsey, like people were like falling over themselves to throw money at you. And today it's more rational. There are frameworks and people expect to see a certain level of traction and, 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 and at least the belief that there might be profit at some point in the future in a way that didn't exist back then. Uh, but it's a, the, yeah, the, being an entrepreneur is way more democratized today than it was then, and it's way easier today than it was then. You don't need to be as technically literal or literate as, as you needed to be back then, and everything is a lot simpler. Right. So what are the most common mistakes you see now starters making um, that should totally avoid? The When I think of, like, why do people worry about it and what ultimately is it kills them, it's very different, right? Like, mo- most most founders are, like, worried about, like, potential competition and the reality or barriers to entry. Like the barrier to entry is your execution. Uh, competition is rarely a big issue or a big deal. Yeah, they exist. They do their own thing. But most people fail because they, they, they get in a fight with their co-founder. They fail because they don't execute on their plan. So it's more internal execution, internal issues that kills companies than it is like uh, external competition that, that ends up being the issue. And, and you can usually find a, a, a means uh, of, of pivoting and going to a side niche if you're too competitive or whatever. So people under overestimate competitive risk, underestimate internal risk of execution and un, internal risk of like uh, of conflicts with their partners. And so picking the right partners, Exxon T makes a lot of sense. And and while the genius of startups is in execution, picking the right idea, especially with the right business model, makes a lot of sense too. And so spending the time to make sure that the company, what you're trying to build actually at a, at a theoretical economic level makes sense, it makes sense. Uh, and the, the other thing to think about is and I see it, it, the level of naivete in terms of what, what entrepreneurs approach us. Many of them have no idea what it, what, what, when you approach a VC, you realize not all VCs are the same. Like, uh, people invest in Series B are not the same invest in Seed or in Series A, and what they expect to see is very different. It's not like VCs. Like, and, and, and so make sure that you approach the right people at the right time with a message that's appropriate for the stage and, and, and it, it, about industries that, that they, that they, that they're interested in. Like, Every week we get 100 deals in, and frankly, 50 of those are, have nothing to do with anything we'd ever look at. Like, I, 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 it's not as though I'm hiding what we do. I, I'm screaming it right under the rooftops. We're doing more marketplaces, marketplaces, and when you're hesitating, marketplaces. And then people send me like, I'm building this like whatever space uh, satellite technology or this biotech startup. Or the, I mean, they're like. It's great, but <laughs> there's literally nothing I can do about it. I, I can't evaluate what you're doing, and, and it's not anything I would ever look at. You know, it's like, why did you spend three minutes to think to figure out like who I am, what I'm invested in, what I like to invest in? And, and frankly, I, it's even worse. I like people send me like, oh, I want to invest in my restaurant. I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, your investment thesis, obviously, you know, you, you don't take board seats, you don't do follow up rounds. Um, Sometimes I do. I, I I don't necessarily. I evaluate new rounds as though I was not an investor and decide whether to invest or not. So I, we follow on twenty five percent of the deals, but that's not a thesis. A thesis is so it's more investment philosophy. The philosophy is yeah, we don't take board seats, we don't lead, we don't price. Uh, we're always the value added co investor to a major VC or to an early stage seed fund. Uh, the thesis is not that. The thesis is what are what are the things in the world that we see today that we invest in. That thesis is verticalization of the horizontal platforms to take Craigslist, eBay, but also 
Thumbtack, uh, Upwork, even YouTube, and like verticalize these platforms. Uh, number two is the reinvention of marketplaces where away from marketplaces where the buyer and seller need to talk, where the technical term is a double commit marketplace, to one where the marketplace picks your supplier. Uh, the technical term is a, it's been called the dispatch model or the marketplace pick or supply pick model. For instance, in Uber, you don't pick your driver. Uh, the way that it, and so imagine going to Thumbtack and having wanting to hire someone to redo your roof, and the alternative would be finding a startup that picks that person for you, and you don't need to do that. And that I think you can do across many, many industries. And the third big thesis for us these days is um, uh, B2B marketplaces. And then, so that's the first level, the thesis, and then the heuristics, which is the approach for how do we invest. And for us, it's like, do we like the team, which is like, are you amazing at storytelling? Do you know your numbers? Are you analytical? To do you do we like the business? Like, is it a large addressable market? Is the business model attractive? Or the economic unit economics good? And for us, good unit economics means you recoup your customer acquisition costs in six months. You three and at a net contribution margin basis over eighteen months, you have a three to one net contribution margin to CAC. And ideally, though not required, you have you have negative churn. Your users use you more and more and more to the point you don't know where the LTV is. Uh, and number three, do we think the valuation is fair in light of the traction, the team, uh, and the, the size of the opportunity? And and those three conjointly need to be true. We need to like the team. We need to like the, 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 the business. And we need to like the deal terms. And if all three are true, we invest. Now, if it matches our thesis, that's great. But the thesis I gave you, the three... Um, Marketplace thesis are, are not completely strongly held. There's seventy percent of what we do. Then there's other stuff we do as well. So your altruistic way you look for an entrepreneur has that changed over the years? Or what are the specifics you look for in a specific individual to see if you have the capability to follow through or not? The we thought long and hard. What does it mean to be a great entrepreneur? And, and in a way, the answer is is unfair. We've realized that storytelling skills is absolutely key. You need to be able to sell the story. And if you storytell effectively, you have an amazing unfair advantage because you're going to be able to raise money more easily. You're going to be attract better talent. You're going to be able to get more PR. You're going to be able to get better BD deals. So storytelling skills, absolutely key. Uh, to general sense of grit and and tenacity, like how are they going to deal and 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 and, 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 and with pressure, and either look for experience of that in the past, or frankly, by pushing hard and questioning them in that call. And if you crumble at a one-hour call of me being difficult with you, you're not going to hold up to the pressure of being an entrepreneur. And so I'm going to push hard on, especially unit economics. Do you know your numbers? Do you know the, the do you know how the, the numbers of the industry you're in? Do you know the theoretical numbers of the business you're in? Do you know the actual numbers of the business you're in? And if not, you know, if you're not that quantitative and analytical, we're not going to follow through because it probably means, even though it might be a great storyteller, you're not going to get the details right. And you're not going to build a business where the financials are in line with reality. Um, and passion. And, and passion either about the industry or the category or you being a passion person in general. So let's skip ahead. You know, you are one of the most extreme people out there. Everything from heli skiing to, you know, during your startups, you obviously sold all your assets, you know, all your stocks and to fund your startups to even going around to selling your apartment and, and your, what's it called, your house and just living out of your suitcase with 50 things. What are, so you obviously experienced a tremendous amount of habits or patterns and you tried experimenting, you know, living different ways of life. What are some non-obvious ideas or habits um, that you found has changed your life? 
Well, first of all, addressing what you said, two things. One is I happen to be a bit of an adrenaline junkie, and so, and I think it expresses itself both in my investing and like I like risk taking. I think in general, most people are on average risk averse, and maybe I actually get positive utility out of being a risk taker and I actually enjoy it. Uh, and so that's why I do like heli skiing and kite surfing. And um, now, in terms of things like the fact that I lived, in fact, I'm currently still living out, out of a suitcase. Uh, um, but for a number of years, we've limited. It's more trying to apply the iterative design patterns that I have in startups to my personal life. So in in, in startups, we literally test everything. Like the is the button red or green? Does it say sell or for sale or sell for free or less? I mean, everything you see at a website, if it's done right and you have it at, at scale, is multi is multivariate tested. And I question the idea that there is a default path um, that is right universally right for everyone because it doesn't seem to be true. In startups, it definitely doesn't seem to be true. And when I observe people around me, and yet there seems to be that default path of like go to college, uh, get a job, get married, have kids, and and, and you know have have a house with two point one kids and one point three dogs, and, and and that seems to be the supposed aspirational values for everyone. I'm like, you know, that's, that's something that doesn't feel necessarily right to me. In effect, it's in warranted testing. What are the things that I value? What are the things that make sense? And, 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 and in going asset light for a while, realize that not having a default path makes you more introspective. You have to choose, okay, now that I have all this time and I could be anywhere and hang out with anyone, where do I want to be? Who do I want to hang out with? What is it I want to do? And when you do have a default path, you don't question those choices. And so having it going at a more profound level and questioning your underlying motivations and, and seeing why they do the things you do is actually relevant. Now, I ended up with a hybrid model that, that's ideal. Like some things I missed in living in out, out of hotel rooms were... Um, if I, I, I like organizing these intellectual salons where I bring these semi-public intellectuals, but they actually don't like to meet in in restaurants or public places, uh, but they're more than happy to come to my place. So having a place uh, where I could do these things and host events, et cetera, actually is something that was useful. And also, because the occupancy rates of hotels in places like New York and San Francisco are so high, I found myself moving hotel rooms every three or four days. And, and even when I was dating, like things were... Uh, 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 a bit weird because if, if you take a girl to a oh, hotel room, uh, she's like, "Because your kids and wife are at home, <laughs> especially if you're changing room every four days." And and and, and so having a a modicum of, of stability there was a bit more helpful. But that said, I like being a minimalist and and asset light because it gives you yeah space space to. To have time to to, tr- to see what your 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 the right the right choices are for you and, and and I and I keep iterating. I mean, I I have a personal assistant in the Philippines to whom I delegate as much as I can, uh, from bill paying to managing my agenda. Uh, I actually have a an estate manager that like in person takes care of all my daily stuff. So too, I can free time to do important things like play tennis and play video games and read and enjoy life. Right, like and so I, I iterate on life design. The same way I, I iterate on which startup ideas I'm going to build, or, or or the fact that in 2013 I came up with this list of all the things I'd like to do, I actually tried most of them. Uh, most of them failed, but I tried them. And so, trying, questioning, trying, pushing, optimizing, and seeing how you react, and seeing how you what maximizes your underlying utility. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So you mentioned about time and, and you said, you know, you obviously have everything scheduled, you know, your tennis, your Xbox playing, um, your reading. Now you're an avid reader. You read, I think, 100 plus books a year. Uh, 50 to 100. It, it varies. But I, admittedly, half of those are sci-fi soap operas. So don't imagine that I'm reading philosophy every day. <laughs> <laughs> but even that 50 to 100 is a phenomenal amount, you know. Yeah. And with your schedule and your time, how do you manage to fit it in? To- I, I read uh, – I travel a lot. I'm on the road seven months a year when I'm not in New York. And uh, I, then I read a lot. I read in the planes. I read in, the, I read in cars. I, and, and in addition to that, I typically read one hour before bed, um, sometimes two hours before bed. So the – and I, I just love reading. I mean I don't read it because I'm trying to become – more intelligent or verse or whatever it's like it is it is total utility you know consumption it's, like, it's total entertainment uh i read because i think it's interesting and, and some of the things i read are philosophy and or business related but most of the things are not and and i find them interesting i, I don't know I, I like the idea of uh being more of a renaissance person or a polymath where you know a fair amount about a lot of things rather than being like super narrowed down one path Mm-hmm. So then what would you say is your most favorite book that influenced your way of thinking and you would recommend to others? The book that I found to be the most mind-boggling and interesting and, 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 and revealing in the last five years is probably Sapiens. Uh, but do I think it's the best book ever? No, it's like a bit long-winded. There are parts where it's uh, a bit slow, et cetera. But in terms of like ideas that I not necessarily considered um, absent reading the book and, and that was as a result – a true revelation. Yeah, it's there. And, and by the way, I, Sapiens more than Amadeus or Twenty One Lessons for the Twenty First Century. Like it, it's, I, I think Arari is a better historian and philosopher than he is futurologist. Um, I, I think non tech people, apparently even many tech people, are, are, are. I don't know if it's luddites, but they're definitely afraid of the future and afraid of like they they, they can imagine the negative consequences of technology and they never consider the what I consider to be the default bullish case of like the positive impacts technology has had and will continue to have on, on humanity because of its deflationary pressure where it makes things cheaper and increases people's quality of life. So your framework, you wrote a blog post the past two weeks about your framework for making important decisions. And I, I was blown away. I think it's absolutely phenomenal. I think it's the same way everyone should approach making important decisions. And there's two key pointers so far because I'm still waiting for the next two posts to come out. These posts take me like five to ten hours of pop to write and edit and publish and do the research and get the content. So. Um, and the two key pointers there, which I'm just going to you know, say them out and you obviously go into it, is step one is assess um, all the options you have available, you know, write it out clearly. Let, so you become one of them and you understand it. And the second option, the second thing, step two is send it out to your advisors, your mentors and your friends and get their honest opinion about it. Third part. Yeah. So step one is actually, it's not think about what your options are. It's actually put it in writing. Right. The process of putting your options in writing crystallizes your thinking, helps you evaluate things in a way, in a way that you hadn't considered before and and, and and allows you to go deeper than you would have otherwise had. Like often you have things in your mind, but I find that the process of putting pen to paper, in my case, it's, you know, keyboard, fingers on the keyboard and, 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 and words to the email that I'm writing to myself, structures my thinking. And for each of these, I evaluate 
you know, my I start from where I am today, but like first principles and not what am I doing, but first principles, how happy am I with my situation? Like what are the things that, what is my state of mind? Am I as happy as I've been in the past? Am I as happy as could be in, in what I consider my ideal state? And then what are the things that I'm doing today? What are the things I'd like to do? What are the things I don't like to do? And can I address those and, and not do them, uh, either outsource them or, 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 and then in terms of things I could potentially like to do, what are those things without putting limits? I think we find ourselves with, again, like these notions of like limiting or options because I've been doing, I've been working in this industry forever. Therefore, I should only think about things in this industry. And, and I saw that pattern. Like when I was at Zingy and at the end, when I was thinking what to do next, because I've been doing mobile content for the last five years, every VC came to me with like mobile opportunities. And, and I don't see myself as, a, I didn't see myself as a mobile entrepreneur. I saw myself as an entrepreneur. I can figure it out. And, and frankly, I didn't like the mobile space. So I didn't want to be in it to begin with. The So don't limit your frame of thinking. Like in my email, I'm like, Build a video game, like, you know. I didn't write it in the email, but I try to like. I try to buy at some point eBay classifieds out of eBay. I try to. I try to run a part of Cuba. You know, like I, I put a whole bunch of stuff, and then for each of these, I lay. I lay down like what would not the ideal version of that life be, but what what does the actual day to day look like, and how happy are you in the day to day, and what are the pros and cons of that day to day? Ignoring, by the way, probability of success, like many of these things have low probability of success. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, lay out all the options and. Don't try to reach a conclusion in the person's writing the email. Just be introspective and deliberate. Lay it all out and then sit on it. And often, without even sh- even without step two, which is sharing it with other people, the, the answer comes to you because you sleep on it and your subconscious mind finds the answer for you. Um, now, it helps to share it with friends and mentors and advisors. In my case, it's really more friends. Because the questions they ask, even though they're often very different, they have very different perspective, and frankly, the recommendations often are completely not applicable. But the comments they make and the questions they ask actually further deepen my thinking. It allows me to to consider and ponder things that I not considered before, and also help crystallize my thinking some more and and get to the next level. Now, step three, which uh, I'll, I'll give you specific examples, is I actually go and try a lot of those things. Um, as I, you know, in, in that email that you read, I wrote the ones I published were two long emails. One is 2001. I'm bankrupt. I'm at the bottom of the bar- bottom of the barrel. I don't know what to do next. And so I've written from a position more of despair. What do I do next? And then I wrote another one, 2012, more from a position of strength of like I've already been successful. I'm in a I'm CEO of a very well a very successful company. It's a very well recognized job. Um, but yet I'm not satisfied. What should I consider doing instead? And, and, and or should I continue to be there? And can I improve that position? So those two emails. In the second email, I laid out a whole bunch of options. What I ended up doing actually is trying a lot of them. And now most of those things I tried failed. And, 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 the, and, and it kind of led to the answer, which is the things that worked, I kept doing. And most of the things I tried didn't work out. And, and, and they fell by the wayside kind of on their own without needing to to deliberate too much about. And that's true for most of the things you do in life. You can try. Uh, and it's not like irreversible. I'm irreversibly going down this path and will never and, – and, and, and you cannot change back. And most choices, be they personal or professional – you have uh, you have flexibility to reconsider and consider that you're that you that, that you've been wrong. And then step four is actually look back in the future. Did you what have you learned that that 
decision-making periods from things that worked and things that didn't work out. Uh, and uh, what what can you try to do to make sure that you don't make the same mistakes on a go-forward basis, which then leads you back to step one. Let's redo this exercise all over again, because this is frankly an exercise that you should be doing on a pretty regular basis, either when there are logical stepping stones, like, oh, I just lost my job, what next? Or, ooh, I've been engaged, I've been dating this girl for two years, should I get engaged? Uh, or, um, if you don't have these logical stepping stones, so yeah, I just ran into college, which job do I take? Then it's, I would force myself deliberately, or, or if you have malaise, like, oh, something's not feeling quite right in my life, like, then you should go through this exercise. But frankly, even if everything's feeling okay, because we're so busy with our day-to-day lives, we have an infinite to-do list. We can be we can be as busy as can be. Like if you wanted to fill your days with meetings twenty-four-seven, you probably could. And and so take the ten, even though things may feel like they're going they're right, take a step back at least every other year, and, and maybe take an artificial date. It doesn't matter if it's your birthday, if it's uh, the new year, uh, and and actually go through the exercise. It, it's useful to make sure that you're not just like sleepwalking into an outcome that is not the one that maximizes your happiness. Right, and I, actually, and after I read your um, your blog post, I actually did that. I actually did sit down and I wrote a letter to myself in the future, and I started working on something for the past. And you're right; it takes a long time. Yeah, so. it takes a long time, and and the reason it takes a long time in this case uh, is blog post number three is actually laying out everything that I tried and what worked, what didn't work, uh, the, the 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 Craigslist conversations, the Cuba presentation, and, and so I'm going to put it on SlideShare, like the pitch I made in the Castro. It's like, and, and so it's a, and it needs to be kind of structured of like tried this, failed, tried this, failed, tried this, failed. Okay, but this actually resonated, worked, and that led to this. So this is where we are today. And, and, and it is actually the structure of it, I think, takes time, plus the writing in a, in a coherent way that doesn't violate NDAs, doesn't piss off half the world. And, and oh, trying to do all these things coherently takes a lot of time. I'm waiting. When is this book going to come out? Uh, you know, The Unorthodox Way to Maximize and Live Life to the Fullest by, by Fabrice Grind. Yeah, it's, you're, I, you know, I, I, many people have asked me to write a book. The problem is when I think of like the things that I like to do and write about, they're all over the place. I suspect that if my blog was 100% dedicated to entrepreneurship and all I wrote about was entrepreneurship, it would be more successful than this because right now, literally, it's like, these are the gadgets I like. This is a video game I played last week. This is a book review. This is a trip I liked. I, I went on and it's a, and and also, this is how you build a startup. This is how you evaluate unit economics. This is my current thesis. Like, it's all over the place. and and. The world we live in sadly rewards specialization. They want people that are, you know, you think brand X, and it's immediately this answer comes out. I mean, so, so people are are very specifically themed, and it's not the way my brain works. It's not the way I lead my life, and so I don't want to be Fabrice entrepreneur. You know, and it's more like. I do a lot of interesting things. And, and so structuring my thoughts in the context of a book that is not specific to entrepreneurship is not easy. Like I thought through like, I mean, and, and, and it feels a bit early to like write an autobiography because I think I'm at the beginning of my life and I have lots of fun things to do and build and conquer. Um, so I'm not quite sure that the, the narrative arc that I would take and the structure I would use. But yeah, like the, I, it could definitely be like the, and the title you suggest is interesting. It's like the non-traditional way to, to living a good life. Uh, it definitely would be non-traditional and atypical. Right. So then what do you, could you give us on one footing over here? Um, a tip that someone can actually implement right now, currently, to maximize their life to the possibilities, to leave it a full life. 
Um, people outsource much less than they should, and you can, uh, you know, you in, in the amount of things you can outsource on Upwork and elsewhere is incredible. The the you know, like if I make a photo album, I, I actually have uh, someone I hired in like Bangladesh to actually help me make a massive photo album with the best photos. Like you, you take twenty thousand photos on vacation, then you never bother. You can't go through twenty thousand photos. You need to pick the best ones, and and having using someone to like pick the best ones and then you curate from there, it saves so much time. But likewise, you can outsource like calendar management, bill paying. Uh, coming up with the ideas for what you should be doing, uh, organizing activities, and, and frankly, scheduling things. Like, it's, if you schedule things, you do them. If you create a routine, like if you say every day, six to seven, I go to the gym, you go to the gym six to seven. If you don't put create that routine and that expectation, it's not on the calendar, you may not do it. Like, you need to create willpower, and that willpower is a, is a, a resource that, can, that you can exhaust. Um, and so, create, yeah, Outsource as many things as possible. You know, I have a, a remote assistant. I, I hired on yourremoteassistant.com. Uh, she's 1100 1200 a month full-time. She works five hours, and she's amazing. Um, I, I, have a, I have everything calendared, like watching a TV show is in my calendar, hanging out with a friend is in my calendar. This way, time doesn't get wasted. Otherwise, if you come, it's one thing to say, okay, I'm going to go home and watch two episodes of Game of Thrones, and I'm allocating two hours for that. So, and that's I actually would consider productive time, even though it's maximizing utility. It's very different than like I got home, I don't know what to do, I turn on the TV, and then two hours have disappeared, but they weren't deliberately chosen. And so I'm I'm trying to make deliberate choices. That said, because I have a tendency to be overly structured and overly organized and overly, I I actually also make I, I schedule unscheduled time. Uh, I write like you know I I will block off like no technology. And I actually kind of my version of the Shabbat because uh, from Friday night to Sunday morning, I try to not use technology and not have scheduled meetings, et cetera. Uh, and and it, and it works for me. It, it, it allows me to have headspace and clear my head to see where serendipity in life takes me and also um, to see what happens. Right. It's incredible. So what message do we tell to Fabrice walking out of Princeton? He has a whole entire world in front of him. You know, so he could go to McKinsey, he could go to a hedge fund, he could start his own venture capital firm, another startup. What message do we tell him facing the rule for the first time? The, I mean, things I, 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 I definitely had not learned out of coming out of college is I didn't realize how I, I thought intelligence was the end all be all. Like if you had high IQ, you could do anything. And, and I was not, I, I, I left college at 21 and I was not socially versed yet. I didn't realize you needed to work with teams. You needed, you needed, you needed to be much more well socially rounded. You needed the, and I was arrogant. I was, I, I, sometimes I still appear to be arrogant today, but like relative to what I, I was Sheldon Cooper. I mean, I really was Sheldon Cooper. In fact, I'm convinced that that character Sheldon was based on me in college. And, 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 and it's not even arrogant. It's like socially unaware. And, 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 un, and because I, and, and un, condescending without even wanting to be. And, and I needed a massive loss, not just in humility, but like, yeah, appreciating the different, the, my value judgments and framework, like it was all around intelligence, uh, was not the only value framework and values that were there in the world. And by the way, there were a lot of things that people do that are also enjoyable and entertaining. Having a more well-rounded life and experience is also compelling. Um, and from a, yeah, from a professional perspective, like the, 
there's a whole set of, of things you could do that could be really interesting. And I wasn't ready to do any of those to, 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 to frankly succeed in any of these things. And so, um, yeah, take yourself less seriously. I was way too serious. Now, the benefit of, but that said, there, it's really hard to regret, right? Like I didn't have a girlfriend until I was 27. I, I didn't have really have any friends. I didn't, but it's really, really hard to regret because on a day-to-day basis, I was really happy. Yeah, I was lonely, but I was really happy. I was like, I was a kid in a candy store. I was like studying things that I, that I thought were interesting. I was taking classes that I thought were interesting. I was reading books that I thought were interesting. I was like pursuing world domination, which I thought was fun and interesting. So, and, and had I not made all those compromises, and I'd been working 50, you know, 100 hours a week since I was like 15 or frankly younger, I probably wouldn't be where I am today. So, yeah, I can give a lot of advice, but would I really change a lot of what I did? Eh, probably not. I'm like, I'm really happy today. And, and, and so why, and I was really happy then, by the way. So it's not as though I was like miserable. I was like, I was happy. Uh, now I was clueless, but I was happy. <laughs> well, you've definitely come a long way. So it's great. <laughs> Fabrice, this has been absolutely amazing. I mean, incredible. There's no words to describe it. I have learned a tremendous amount, um, not just about you, about everything you did. I've took upon, I've learned a tremendous amount of lessons that I can implement into my life currently on a daily basis. And we're definitely going to have to do more rounds of this. You know, I can just sit and talk with you for hours. You have so yeah, much no, happy, happy to do that. I, I, look, I actually considered maybe I should have a podcast, et cetera. W- one thing we didn't mention, but I, I think is worth doing is like expressing gratitude, right? Like, I've always been happy because I've always been grateful for like the positions and the opportunities given afforded to me. The fact that we're born in this extraordinary time, which is like the most peaceful and prosperous time in the history of humanity. The fact that we're born in whether you're in the U.S. or in the West, and like you know, well-off countries where you have rule of law and 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 where you have opportunities that you can go from nothing and succeed. I mean. It, expressing gratitude and being optimistic it changes you know your life and your life outcomes like one little hack like i don't read i don't read newspapers i don't follow cable news i don't follow daily news it's irrelevant it has no bearing in anything that might that is really influential on the world on a macro level over 10 or 20 years like those daily things it's like noise and it's negative noise like cut yourself off from it and 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 surround yourself with positive, interesting people that are doing amazing things and, and, and do those amazing things. That's amazing. I know when you come back from your vacation, I hope you have a great time that you would definitely come to invite you to my home for a Friday night dinner and get to experience a whole different type of culture set and everything. <laughs> Perfect. Well, I, I, I don't know. I'm recently close to Mark Gerson and I, I go to Shabbat dinners uh, very often and they're a lot of fun. And, and so I've actually been to many Shabbat dinners. So you're definitely invited. And it goes without saying, you know, first of all, before that, gratitude, the most important thing. And you touched upon that point and home it at home. To be grateful, to, you know, it brings everything into introspection. And it brings everything, even the smallest things, you start recognizing and you start appreciating it. It's an amazing thing to mention. Well, thank you for having me. Sure. It goes without saying, if there's anything I can do for you, for FJ Labs, for anything, always here for you, man. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you.